Let's all stand together. Please take your hymnal. Let's go to page number 498. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Hey, it's Sunday morning. We're in the Lord's house. You have your hymnal. So let's sing out nice and loud for our Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.
you shake hands with those around you. Let them know you're glad to see them here in the Lord's house this morning. things. Amen. Any first time visitors with us this morning? Any first time visitors? Any first time visitors? Okay. All right. 
have a number of announcements for us this morning. June 5th will be our promotion Sunday. All of the Sunday school teachers will, uh, not all of them, as you get up into the youth department, you don't go on to the next grade sometimes or next class. Uh, we have 7th, 8th, 7th and 8th together and then all the high schools together. So uh, some of you get to stay in the same class, but most of you will get new teachers next week. Uh, June 3rd, we're going to be taking the seniors on a trip to the Tabernacle in the Wilderness. Uh, I am excited about that trip, and uh, after that, we're going to be going to Captain Jack's uh, for a big plate of seafood, and that's going to be a good time too, amen, the fellowship there. Uh, June 20th through the 22nd, uh, that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 6.30 through 8.30, uh, so please make note of this. That's our Vacation Bible School. Drivers, we need you in your places, teachers, workers, everybody in place for that. And then teen camp July 11th through the 15th. And all these things will get here before you know it. So let's get ready for that summer jump. Amen. Please take your hymn book out and turn to hymn number 335. Hymn number 335. And let's sing out on showers of blessing. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing, sin from the Savior above. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round as our falling, but for the showers we plead. There shall be showers of blessing, precious reviving again. Over the hills and the valleys, sound of abundance of rain. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy draws round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. There shall be showers of blessing, send them upon us, O Lord. Us, but now us refreshing, come and now honor thy word. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy just round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. There shall be showers of blessing, oh that today they might fall. Now as to God we're confessing, now as on Jesus we call. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy draws round us our falling, but for the showers we plead. Thank you, maybe see. Usher, would you come? It's good to welcome our, this morning our service. Good to see some of our old friends. I don't mean old, old wise, but I mean from a long time ago. Uh, Jane and Talika back there. And uh, we're glad to have folks from Tennessee back with us this morning. And uh, we just soon you folks moved down here and just stayed. Uh, but uh, it's good to see each of you. We have a long list of folks that are out sick, and I'm not going to even attempt to mention all, but uh, look on our prayer list, and we have uh, a number of folks, you can look, look around and see this morning that a bunch of people are not here, but pray for uh, Susan and Michael, the uh, brother William uh, Burden passed away this past week, and uh, I don't have, we don't have the um, arrangements yet, I'll let you know when we get that, but um, remember them. And also, uh, Matt and Rachel, uh, they're out today, funeral service yesterday for Rachel's dad, and then one of the grandchildren that was down here for the funeral got sick last night, and, uh, and they had to take her to the marriage room, <clears throat> so that's uh, an issue, need to remember in prayer. Also, Megan's going to be having surgery this week over in uh, Tampa, so remember her in prayer. All right, let's bow our heads down, look, look to the Lord in prayer, and ask his blessings on these requests and on the offering and the service this morning. 
Brother Smith, would you lead us? our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the message this morning. I pray that you'd fill me with the Holy Spirit and use me, Lord. I pray that uh, the message be a blessing, but also bring conviction to those needed. And Lord, I ask you not to um, pray that there'll be no distractions, there'll be nothing to take away from the hearing of your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn anywhere you want to in the Bible. All of it's good. I'm not going to use any particular verse for text this morning. We're going to be all over the Bible. So, um, In reading um, the Psalms, the, the concept that seems to be paramount is the psalmist's respect for the name and the person 
of God, the awe and the wonder they had for God. The psalmist was saying that their God is above the things of the earth, that he stands literally upon the circle of the earth. God is our fortress, they, they teach us. God is our might. God is our courage, and he's greater than all others. There's none other like unto God. As Brother Larry Brown would say, ain't nobody like him. Looking through the Psalms, you'd find a golden thread of great respect for the name of God. When the Hebrew scribes were translating the biblical text, they would come to the name Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, which is the Hebrew translation of the word Jehovah. And we just use the word God in the English. But they would put their pen or their stylus down when they came to that word and write the word God with a new stylus and then discard that one and pick up another one to begin translating the text. When they came to the word Yahweh again, they would secure a fresh pen to write his name. This was because of their great respect for God. They refused to write any other word with the same pen with which they'd written the name of God. It wouldn't hurt us to return to some of that awe of the holiness of God. Even in our Christian worship, we need a new awe, a new, a new reverence, a new respect for the righteousness, the holiness, and the greatness of God himself. There, there are many attributes with which we describe God. We, we call God omnipotent, which means all-powerful. All power is given unto me in heaven and, and in earth, he said. We speak about the omnipresence of God, which means he's everywhere present. Then we call God omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. He is all-powerful, mighty, courageous, unequal, unparalleled in being. He's God of this universe. And under him, there's none even similar to what he is and who he is. With all of these thoughts in mind about God himself, what I'm saying is that God, this, this wonderful, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God has no comparison. There's no one even close to him. However, in the light of all of this, I submit to you this morning that there are some things that God does not know. That takes you by surprise. That's, that's a little bit of play on words. But I want to talk to you this morning about some things that God does not know. Before this wonderful God, the psalmist would bow their heads in reverence and respect, speaking words that flowed with eloquence and power. Yet this God is wonderful, as great, and unequal as he is. There are some things God does not know. Now stay with me. Don't anybody leave. I'm not a heretic. Uh, you'll understand in a minute. But just hang on. First of all, God does not know of a sin that he does not hate. God hates sin. You know what sin is? In short, sin is rebellion against God and disobedience toward God. When you talk about the wages of sin being death, it's interesting to note that the word wages, it comes from a root word uh, that refers to rotten meat. Rotten meat. Sin is like meat. You go down to the butcher shop, you buy, you buy a steak, and it looks good. You carry it home. You think it'll really be good for you. But if that meat is rotten, not only will it not taste good, but it also make you sick. You become ill because of it. Sin can be a pleasure for a season. The Bible speaks about the pleasure of sin for a season. 
but then it also always brings forth death. God hates sin. There was a time in the Bible when the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved, and I don't have the time to go into all the details of what had happened, but you may remember the Philistines had came down, they had captured the Ark and taken it back with them, but it caused them so much trouble. They brought that Ark back and put it next to their God, the God Dagon, which is just a statue. And God, every morning when they'd get up, that statue would be fallen over, broke, broken all to pieces, head of it off, arms off, all kinds of things. They just went on for several nights until he finally wised up and thought, we need to move that ark away from our God because our God's not doing too well. God had told the, the Jews back when, when uh, all of this was set up, the tabernacle and the ark and the mercy seat on the ark and all, all of that, God had to told them that they were not to touch that ark. If any man touched the ark, they would be destroyed. And even when the high priest went in on the day of atonement, one day out of the year, he went in with the proper offering, the blood offering, uh, he was not to touch that ark. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, but he was not to touch the ark. Now, I don't know if this is, there's nowhere in the Bible that it, uh, that it says this, but tradition says the uh, historical uh, accounts from the Jews about, about that time was that they would tie a cord around the ankle of the high priest in case something didn't go right when he went back with the offering back in the Holy of Holies that if, if, if God were to kill him, that they could pull him out. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's just a tradition. But, but God was very clear in, in his command that that ark was not to be touched. And so the Philistines, after all the problems they had having that ark, they tried to take it to another city and thousands of people would die and God would strike them with emeralds and all kinds of things. And, and, uh, and so every, in every city, they'd say, we don't want it. Take it somewhere else. So they finally, they finally wound up taking it back to the home of Abinadab. And Abinadab was a Jew, and he had, he had three sons, at least three sons. He had a couple of sons, Uzzah and Ahio. He had a, a, an older son that was actually acted as a priest in the family. And for 20 years, that ark was in that home. That ark represented the presence of God. God was present in that home in those 20 years. Those boys, Uzzah and Ahio, were raised up with that ark in their home. They knew what God had said about not touching that ark. They had been taught that all of their lives. But because it was in the home for 20 years, they developed an over-familiarity with that ark. It become commonplace. And I warn parents with little children, uh, don't let church become a playhouse for your children. Don't let it become commonplace. Let it get too familiar with the church and the things of God. There ought to always be a reverence. I like fellowship. I believe that we ought to be friendly. We ought to shake hands. We ought to, we ought to greet one another. But I believe there's a limit, a limit to the irreverence that sometimes pervades uh, church services. I think there ought to be a, a uh, reverence, a holiness, an awe about being in the house of God among God's people and bringing, bringing things before God. So they developed a sense of over-familiarity with the ark. And so when they were, when David became king and he wanted to move the ark back, in the first place, they were going about the wrong way. They, were, they put it on a new cart. God had said that ark was only to be moved on the shoulders of, of those uh, Levite priests. There were men who were designated to carry the ark. There were rings in the four corners of the ark and staves were to be run through those rings and then they bore on their shoulders the ark. It was not, not to be 
touched by human hands, not, uh, it, was, it was to be done exactly the way God said. But what they did, they started to move that ark the way the world wanted to move it. Now, I think that churches today have brought too much of the world in our service. We're trying to do the things the way the world wants it done rather than the way God says it ought to be done. And I could spend six months on that. But when they were moving that ark, that ark began to topple, began to move. And Uzzah reached up and touched that ark. He knew, he knew better. He knew that he should not touch that ark. But because of his over-familiarity with it, he reached up and touched it and God slew him. You say, well, you know, that was cruel. That was cruel. No, it wasn't. Uzzah knew better. But he disobeyed God. And so God slew him. God hates disobedience. God is repulsed by the rebellion of a person who tries to find a better way to do something other than the dictates and words and promises of God. Some think that you know, we, maybe we're too rough. Maybe we ought to be a little kinder to those that commit sin. I think what we really need to do with those who commit sin is to be more truthful with them. We need to preach God's word straight at them. God will not bend for anyone's tradition. God will not sway for anyone's needs on a particular day. God will not compromise concerning that which satisfies one's hunger for whatever the world has to offer. God does not know a sin he doesn't hate. It's our nature to sin. It's the nature of a dog to bark, the nature of a cat to bow, uh, to meow, 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 whatever, whatever noise it makes. But it's our nature to sin because we're born with the sin nature. You don't have to spank a child to get him to do bad. It's amazing how they do that all by themselves, isn't it? You have to spank and discipline children to make them do good. This old sinful nature of ours will make us do things we should not do. It's that sinful nature that God hates. A person may be self-righteous with all kinds of sins in his own life. He may not even notice those sins because he's too busy pointing his fingers at the sins of others. But beware. It's not just alcoholism, not just murder, not just lying, stealing that God hates. God hates sin, period. Criticism, gossip, any kind of sin, God hates. There was a man and woman named Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. You remember what happened to them? They dropped dead in church. God hates sin for one basic reason. God hates sin because sin is in conflict with the nature of God. It's the nature of God to be holy and righteous. He knows that sin drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He knows that sin is what made Cain pick up a club and beat his brother Abel to death. That's against the nature of God. God is love and righteousness. God hates sin because it's against his nature. God is our Father in heaven. He wants to protect us. It's amazing how people want to blame God for things that he didn't have anything to do with. Not God's fault when someone doesn't watch over their children when they play near the street and they get run over. As a father, I was responsible for providing protection and the physical needs of my three children. I was responsible for keeping our home generally in order and maintaining the upkeep and safety of the home. And God, as our Father in heaven, wants us to be protected against everything bad that comes to us. It's frightening to see those who flirt with sin and live in rebellion against God. It's a young girl that came by the church office one day and she was wanting money. And I saw that there was a guy that was hiding, hiding himself behind one of the trees that I saw when they were walking up that he waited behind the tree 
and sent her over to the office wanting money. Uh, most of the time when people come here wanting money, they're wanting drugs. They're wanting to buy drugs. And I tried witnessing to her. And she, uh, she finally, she said, oh, you're one of those folks who believe in the Ten Commandments, aren't you? My friend, the muscle and the heart of this world are the people that believe in the Ten Commandments. The glue that holds this world together, that keeps it from flying apart in some kind of insanity are those people who believe in the Ten Commandments and the words of Christ and the things of holiness and righteousness. The life that's lived for Jesus Christ and the truths of the Bible is a life that's happy and whole and fulfilling. There's not one thing this stingy old world has to offer that a person cannot find better in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If it's rebellion against God in any way, God hates it. A Christian should not want to do things that God hates. God categorically hates sin. Now, you still with me? God doesn't know a sinner he doesn't love. God hates lying, but he loves the person that lies. God hates murder, but he loves the person who murders. God hates adultery, but he loves the adulterer. Everything that is sinful about man is hated and despised by God, but God loves us. He loves the individual. He loves a person. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place that we might have life. If a person goes to the doctor and the doctor examines him and, exam and recommends that, that he should have surgery, even though that surgery is going to hurt, even though there's going to be a long recovery period, there's going to be pain, very few people would want to change doctors for being truthful and want to do something about what's wrong with them. A preacher is a spiritual doctor. He has to point out the illness, but the one who is ill must take the medicine. The doctor can't go to the drugstore and follow the patient home and give him the medicine. And a preacher can only prescribe that God hates lying, he hates sinning, in sinful ways, but in the midst of all that hatred, there's another thing that God does not know. He does not know a sinner he doesn't love. Someone go out on the street right now and shake his fist toward heaven and shout, God, I hate you. I hate you. Take your son, Jesus Christ, and stuff him on the other side of heaven someplace. But the voice of heaven will come back, but my child, I love you. The Bible says that God is love. The only thing that keeps a man or a woman out of hell is the love of God. The only person who loves a cheat or a thief is the person who will tell them that's wrong, that's sin. The best friend the sinner ever had was the man who told him that sin, whatever it is, is wrong and a sin against God. When a thief or a fornicator realizes it's wrong, he can repent of his sins and our loving God can change him and set his feet upon a rock and give him a sense of purpose and peace instead of guilt. Every, every year, thousands of drug addicts commit suicide because they cannot cope with the perversion that's come into their lives. To change a person's preference to sin, one must first change the person. The only way a sinner can ever be different is to say, I am a sinner. I acknowledge my sin. And I and I ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive me and come into my heart and save my soul. You know, our society has excused just about everything that anybody can do nowadays. I mean, nothing's wrong. I mean, uh, 
they're, they're teaching now in the schools that there is no absolute, there's no absolute right and absolute wrong. There's no such thing as sin. It's a disease instead of sin. Uh, a person doesn't need to be told that he's just sick. He needs to be told that he's lost, that he's a sinner and lost and on the way to hell unless he gets saved. Admit that he's a sinner. Some uh, parents today, they approve of their children's rebellion. They don't do anything to correct them. They don't realize that they're creating a criminal, that he's going to be in jail someday, and our men, ladies that are in the jail service are going to be preaching to them. God does not approve of sin, but he approves of people. He loves the person. It cost him his son upon the cross. He loves people more than we can ever imagine. And he wants us to realize that we can be saved. He wants us to know that we can be different. That our lives can be transformed. People ask what they can do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It's already been done. Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sin. That's all we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What must be done to be saved has already been done. Believing, accepting, receiving, and letting Christ be our own personal Lord and Savior is what saves us. It's hard for us as humans to love child abusers, but God loves them. God even loves people with poor, demented minds. Not matters not how evil and rot, rotten a person's been, whatever a person has done, God still loves them. And that brings me to the third thing God does not know. God does not know another way to be saved. There's only one avenue of salvation that's through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You can't improve on that. Some think that salvation is social involvement, being a loyal citizen. That won't get a person into heaven. There are people who go to church, they attend the PTA meetings, the country club, the band parents meetings, the football quarterback club. Consequently, church merely is another place for many to go, for a person to uh, look like a good citizen. The church of Jesus Christ is not merely one among many things to which a person should give his attention. It is the number one thing for the child of God. Every now and then someone who's been teaching Sunday school, they'll come and they'll say, Preacher, I'm going to have to give up my class because we're going to be too involved in Little League Baseball now or some other uh, kind of sport. And I'm grateful for, for those kind of things. I think it's good to have uh, sports for our children and all of that, but if a Christian has to make a choice between God's house and anything of the world, my friend, it's better to choose God's house. And you're not going to be hurt by it, and your child's not going to be hurt by it either. We'd better be, we better have loyalty to God's house. The events of the world succeed much more than the matters of God because God's people are saying no to the church and yes to the world. People become loyal to the world thinking that they're community-minded, but no one's ever gone to heaven what he's done for the community. Our first loyalty as Christians should be to God and his church. Other people can do those other things. There are a lot of people that can do those things and they, that are not involved in church. So let them do them. God's people need to be where God wants them to be. 
And the Bible says not forsaking ourselves, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting so much, uh, one another and so much some more as you see the day approaching. Social involvement will not save you. God doesn't know anything about that. You know, some people have, they have a religion called God understands religion. They, you know, they say, well, no preacher, I don't go to church, but God understands. No, God does not understand. He doesn't understand that. All that God understands that only through Jesus Christ does a person go to heaven. Without Jesus Christ, a person goes to hell. There is no excuse for anyone's particular case. There never has been exception to that. God does not know a better way to be saved than through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. And then God does not know a better time than now to be saved. Now is the best time to be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. God says the brevity of life is so sure. Life is held by such a fragile thread. One reason a person needs to be saved now, no matter what his age, because nobody has any promise of another day. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Furthermore, Jesus Christ might come today. And most people think that when they reach the point of death that they'll call their families to the bedside, fold their arms and read the will to the family and tell them goodbye. But it probably won't be that way. It's not going to be expected. It's not going to be a time that you have decided that'll be it. Today is the day to be saved. Now is the accepted time. As far as God's concerned, to say not now is saying no forever. But God knows that you may not have another time. There may be not be another opportunity. It's a slap in the face of a holy God to say, God, I'll get saved when I want to. I'll get saved on my time. I'll come around someday, maybe. God doesn't know a better time to be saved than right now. <clears throat> a person can bring happiness to heaven, happiness to loved one, happiness to those around by giving his heart and life to Jesus Christ. God does not know a better time than right now to be saved. Would you stand please with your heads bowed? Now, Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless the invitation time. I pray that you speak to every heart. Lord, I've done my best to present the message and to make it clear and plain. So I pray now the Holy Spirit would take the words that have been spoken and use them, press them upon people's heart, and may each of us do today what you would have us to do. If there's someone here this morning without Christ and in a crowd this size this morning, I cannot be, believe that there would not be someone here who is not saved. I pray, Lord, you'll help them to come and let us show them from God's word how they can be saved, how they can know that when they die, they'll go to heaven. So if there's Christians today that need to rededicate their life, may they come. Uh, whatever the need might be, someone may be uh, just needs to come from prayer. Maybe someone needs comfort. I pray to help each of us to do what we ought to do. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing a verse of invitation song, we invite you to come this morning. If God spoke in your heart, would you come? Just
God does not know of anyone that he cannot and will not save. But your response is up to you. God will and he can save you if you'll just come to him. And I plead with you this morning, if you're not saved, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. As we sing another verse, would you come? Just as I am the tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without all ask you to bow your heads. We'll not sing anymore, but while some are still here at the altar, how about you this morning? While we wait, would you come? Still waiting on these at the altar. How about you this morning? Maybe God's keeping the invitation open just for you. Would you come? you can look up this way I, we're glad you're here this morning those who are visiting with us we're glad you've chosen our church to visit we invite you to come back visit with us again our service night at 6 o'clock